a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. The rates of juvenile arrests and incarcerations has been declining, declining since the mid-1990s. Why is that? What's changed? Uh, there is a great new study from the R Street Institute that identifies deflection programs as a key factor. So to help us break all of that down, Sarah Anderson is the Associate Director for the Criminal Justice and Civil Liberties Team at the R Street Institute. She joins us on the line. Sarah, thanks for coming on. Hi, Boyd. Thank you so much for having me back on. Uh, so let's dive into this. This is uh, really interesting to me. Uh, we we often talk about uh, criminal justice reform and uh, juvenile justice reform in particular in terms of how do we do that. Uh, so tell us about this study that uh, R Street has taken on and uh, give us kind of a baseline of what, what have we learned. Yeah, so as you mentioned kind of in the outset here, we know that uh, juvenile incarceration rates have declined significantly since the mid-1990s, which we find to be a very good thing. Um, at the same time that juvenile arrests have declined by 74% between the mid-90s and 2019, the incarceration rate also dropped by 70%, um, so that matches pretty well. And at the same time, there was no corresponding uptick in overall or violent juvenile crime. Um, so we found that to be a, a very good indicator of what we need to do now that we've seen, as we've talked about before, um, an uptick in violent crime across the country in the years since 2019, and some policies that can be really effective in sort of stymieing any criminal activity before it becomes too serious. And one of the primary areas, as you know, you and I have talked about before, um, is ensuring that juveniles don't get wrapped up in a system that they don't need to get wrapped up into if they're not going to be a serious threat to society. Um, so what we noticed with deflection in particular um, is obviously it's a very localized effort um, whereby police officers, when they encounter a juvenile engaging in less than ideal activity, they have the ability to not arrest that juvenile and instead uh, deflect them to resources in the community, um, either through a civil citation or a pre-arrest diversion through law enforcement to case management um, or restorative justice in some instances. So what we wanted to do with this study, um, which we titled, I think, aptly, The Overview of Juvenile Deflection in the United States, a state-by-state comparison. Um, if you open it up, you'll see that's exactly what it is. It's kind of just running through sort of a database of what is the juvenile justice system like in each state? Um, do, does their state have presumptive deflection of any sort or a statewide statute for deflection? Um, and even if not, or if so, what about the largest city in that state? Um, do they practice a formal version of juvenile deflection that helps divert people from the system that don't need to be there so that police officers then can focus on addressing violent crime that we know has risen among adults as well as juveniles in the past couple of years? Yeah. And as you look at that, the uh, uh, the, the statistics is clear, clearly pointed out in terms of those that get arrested and become part of that system versus those that are deflected or, or given into resource programs or things like that, uh, the, the results seem to be pretty compelling in terms of uh, what opportunities are ahead for those non-arrested youth. 
Right, exactly. Um, and that's, that's precisely the point. We know that non-arrested youth are more likely to be successful in a number of ways, um, including completing school and enrolling in college, which helps you, of course, get a job. Um, and it also helps them avoid just the negative collateral consequences that flow from arrest and detention that fuel the justice system, whether it's trauma or a questionable social identity once somebody's labeled a delinquent um, or not being able to complete high school as a result of it. And then also when you think about the interaction that a, a young person might have with law enforcement, if they see it as something positive, would they were given help having made a mistake or just, um, you know, had a, had a situation where they behaved as they shouldn't, you know, as kids might do. Um, if they're treated well by law enforcement and in a way that they feel is legitimate as they grow into adulthood, especially now that um, so many people across the country do consider law enforcement to be illegitimate in a number of ways, it's certainly beneficial um, to enhance youth police relationships as well as adult mm. police relationships that we talk a lot about, too. Yeah. One of the things that I thought was interesting in uh, in your report was that uh, despite all the benefits that are that seem to be pretty clear, that deflection still seems to be uh, an underutilized strategy. Uh, in terms of dealing with right. youth. Right. And I think that's a part of the reason that we dived into this study, especially to see where programs have been effective. Um, and in our study, we found that the city of Salt Lake right there in Utah um, has a pretty successful program that they call the Salt Lake Peer Court. Um, and it was authorized and certified um, after the passage of the Utah Youth Court Diversion Act, um, which effectively allows um, it's a peer court, so it's a court of uh, trained and, you know, certified through this program uh, peers who will be available to have a discussion and essentially adjudicate their peers in terms of um, where they should go. So it's a panel of high school volunteers that are trained to hear the cases, um, run through a nonprofit, and then as a result um, of somebody who either has an offense of alcohol, bullying or cyberbullying, criminal mischief, disorderly conduct. Um, fair evasion, things like theft or trespassing or truancy. Um, so what you would consider certainly low-level offenses, especially for juveniles, um, they'll get a contract set, which could include community service, educational opportunities, vocational training, um, social activities, counseling, or any other type of, uh, of course, deflection program, as we're talking about. Um, but then would they be assigned a peer mentor that then follows up and ensures that they complete this? Um, and as a result, they would not have a criminal record. These offenses that would be misdemeanors are, of course, not appearing on their record, which we know a criminal record is one of the largest indicators of recidivism and committing new offenses. So it's really novel what Salt Lake has done uh, right there in Utah that we're looking toward as a, as a model that could be copied elsewhere. And as you've gone through all, all the data and looked at sort of the savings, to me, there's sort of a two-part savings. Obviously, there's uh, there's a dollars and cents savings to taxpayers in, in terms of what it costs to have somebody in that system and then become a revolving door in that system. And then there's, of course, also sure. the, the bigger savings in, in terms of the human potential uh, of right. one of those young people. Yeah, I think that's, you know, hits the nail on the head in terms of not only is it a cost savings in the system itself, the taxpayers are not paying to incarcerate somebody who could be otherwise successful in, a, in an alternate reality. Um, but again, just from a human human dignity standpoint of believing in freedom, believing in individual liberty and believing in second chances um, and the rights of all Americans to live a prosperous life as they're able to. Um, certainly the loss of human capital in the criminal justice system is a travesty in a number of ways. Um, and whether you want to view it from, again, a fiscal angle or a human dignity standpoint, I think that's exactly correct. Yeah. Sarah Anderson's the Associate Director for the Criminal Justice and Civil Liberties Team at the R Street Institute. Uh, Sarah, appreciate all your work on all of this. I think this is such a crucial conversation. Uh, I think it's critical, not just for these individual young people, uh, but this this has such a high impact on families, neighborhoods, communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's just one of those conversations we've, we've got to lean into in a in a significant way. Appreciate your work on this, and thanks for joining us today.
Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, our hope is that different communities can look to this study, look at what's been successful in states and localities similar to their own, learn from it, implement it, and hopefully, uh, you know, set our juveniles up for success and not the opposite. So appreciate the time on the show and always good to be with you. All right. Again, Sarah Anderson from the R Street Institute. Uh, always great insight. They do such good work there. Uh, appreciate Sarah's perspective and, and insight as it comes to what we're doing with criminal justice, specifically in terms of our juvenile justice system and how we can do that just a little bit better. I think that is all about human capital, human potential, and making sure we're maximizing it, uh, not just getting it into a system uh, that will undermine it. All right, we're going to go ahead and step aside for bottom of the hour news. When we come back, we're going to go back to that picture that painted a thousand words today at the White House, President Barack Obama's portrait unveiling at the White House. I think there are some lessons in those portraits that are going to be good for all of us. You don't want to miss it. Stick around. We'll be right back. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. 